Can you guys hear me? Yeah, I think so. Oh my gosh, got ambushed again. We were, uh, my wife and I, um, by the way, this is my incredible wife, uh, Camden. If you want to stand up right here. Camden is probably 10 times of a better preacher than I am, so why I'm up here, I don't know, but uh, she, uh, how many of you were not here last night? Uh, it looks like a lot of new people. I know Alan said is, okay, so probably the majority of you were not here last night, so this is a true story. She is so f- out of my league. When we go grocery shopping, they'll put the divider down in between our stuff because they're thinking there's no way a guy could, could hook up with someone like that. <laughs> But I, I, I love her. You might notice I'm not wearing my wedding ring. Um, our relationship is amazing. Uh, they mentioned I was at the camp. I think I lost it in the lake or something like that. So uh, if any of you happen to have a size eight men's wedding ring, <laughs> just an extra one lying around, um, you can come see me because I am accepting uh, donations at this point for that. Yeah. <clears throat> How many of you just already feel the presence of the Holy Spirit in the room? I've got to be honest. Last night, you know, we had, a, we had an incredible time at the youth camp. Oh, my goodness. Amazing times when these guys down here, Taylor, Elena, and others. Powerful time. And um, we had a powerful time last night as well. But I've got to be honest with you. When I stepped into the worship this morning, I felt a level of faith in the room that I did not feel last night. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is really going to crash in on many of us in an incredible way, even this morning. And so I want to say this as well. And I, I normally, I actually, I don't, I don't believe I have ever done this, but the Lord dropped this in my spirit. So I think that some of you, God is not going to wait for me to get done up here. And so if the Holy Spirit starts to touch you and you feel him resting on you, anytime during this message, I want you to just where you're at, stand up and just lift your hands like this so I can just quickly minister you and bless what he's, what he's doing. Does that sound good? So listen, you are not going to be intrusive. I bless you in Jesus' name right here. More Holy Spirit. If the power of God starts to fall on you as I'm speaking, stand up and we're gonna bless what he's doing. I love a lady by the name of Ruth Ward Heflin and uh, I read quite a bit of stories of her life and something she says that I believe with all my heart is uh, the failure to make room for the glory in our services is the reason why we see so little of it. And I've learned, uh, the Lord has really ministered in my spirit, reading the story of Jacob in the Bible, how he waited and he served long after his commitment because he so had a longing for Rachel. And he served seven years longer to Laban. And what the Lord spoke to me from reading that is this, whatever you're longing for, you're gonna linger for. Whatever you're really longing for, you're gonna linger for. And so I wanna, I'm gonna try to, uh, preach a quick word here and make room. We're going to linger in the presence of the Holy Spirit. I bless you, sir, in the name of Jesus. And we're just going to see what the Lord's going to do. It's going to be fun. I think it's going to be powerful. I have a couple of uh, words of knowledge, or I love what Alan was said about when Bob is here. He says they're guesses of knowledge unless they're right. And so <laughs> we'll see. Just. Uh, I feel really free up here, so if it's wrong, it's wrong. If it's right, it's right. 
Um, the first one, just real quick here, over somewhere, I think on this side of the room is our Rob. Rob on this side of the room, right here. Can you stand up, sir? So uh, what I felt like is, I believe it's Ecclesiastes 10.10, where it's speaking about an anointing resting upon the people for wisdom, and it speaks about the axe, and when the uh, axe is dull, that the man has to work harder, but a sharp axe can accomplish twice as much work with less effort. And I feel like that the Holy Spirit is going to release upon you, Rob, in this next season, you're stepping into an anointing of divine prophetic wisdom. And I don't know if you're currently, if you're like a business guy, work with stuff like that. I'm seeing the Lord giving you some, uh, like a spiritual intuition, spiritual engineering and innovation that you're going to walk in in just a radical way. And I think you're seeing measures of it, but it's going to increase rapidly, rapidly, rapidly. And I just bless you, Rob, with that in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. See, whenever, whenever you're just letting the Holy Spirit flow, you can, feel, you can feel the faith in the room rise every time. So what, uh, one more real quick here. Is there a Candace, first of all? Candace. Not here today? Does she work in uh, dentistry? Candace that works somehow in, in dentistry. Your daughter-in-law? Okay. Uh, come see me afterwards so I can, I can, I'll tell you what I've got here. Uh, I think this is the last one. Is there an Amber? Amber? Your wife is in the back. Um, is January 28th something for her? Amber and January 28th. Is that anything? All right. I think this is the only other thing I'm getting right here, sir. Um, I was seeing, and, and if this is, if it's the Lord, take it. If it's not, that's fine. But I, was, I saw like this sort of uh, hovering going on over your chest right here. I don't know if you've had any issues with a pain in the chest or with, a, with your heart or uh, maybe diaphragm or anything like that right here in the yellow uh, shirt. Have you had any issues right there? Anything going on at all? Okay, all right. Well, we're going to move on here then, because that's, that's, uh, I think that's all I've got. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Luke uh, chapter 9. We're going to go in just a second into uh, verse 57, but we're, I'm going to try to wrap this up by about uh, 11.30, somewhere in that ballpark, to give us a lot of time to minister, and then we've got to go out of here, we've got to catch a flight, but um, I want to talk about preparing ourselves for stewarding the coming of the Holy Spirit. And um, if you're into titles and things like that, the title of this is called The uh, Threat of Convenient Christianity. And so uh, we're going to dig more into the meat of it in just a little bit. But uh, I do believe that it ties into impartation because the whole point of this message is living a life that prepares us to steward a move of the Spirit because I do believe that the Lord does not only want us to be a people of visitation, but he desires us to be a people of habitation. In other words, I think he wants to shift us out of moments and into momentum. And I think that happens by, see, the journey to learning, we all want the suddenlies of God, but I believe that the journey to steward suddenlies happens by developing consistency. I think that God trusts us with suddenlies to steward suddenlies when we learn to steward ourselves. 
when we learn what it is to not just be a people that are contending for the gifts and the, the anointing is as powerful as all of that is, and we're gonna get into that this morning, but wh- why I wanna dig into this is as much as we contend for all of that stuff, I believe we, ju- we need just as much to contend for supernatural character, supernatural integrity, the th- things that become our foundation, that root and anchor us in the things that are able to carry the weight of the promises of God that he releases upon us. Psalms 84.11 has become a very important verse for me and it says, the Lord God is a sun and shield, the Lord will give grace and glory. And what I really wanna zone in on is this, it says, no good thing will he withhold from him who walks uprightly. And what that says to me when I read that is this, as important as it is to cry out for something, what if he's not just looking for me to cry out harder but to change my posture? Because in the posture of uprightness, I position myself in yieldedness before the Lord for no good thing to be withheld from me. Something else the Lord spoke to me uh, probably about two years ago now. How many of you are familiar with a man by the name of Smith Wigglesworth? Anybody? Yeah. Incredible guy. Tells uh, so, so many stories of Smith, but... I don't know if anyone's like me, whether even if you're only half listening, you just love to stream things like uh, Bethel TV or you just play sermons and things like that in the background of your house, music to just kind of soak the atmosphere. Anyone like me, you just, even, if, even if you're not fully dialed in, you just play stuff throughout the day. And so I, uh, a few years ago now, I'm, I'm listening to somebody teaching and I can't remember who it was and they're quoting Smith Wigglesworth. And you probably, if you're familiar with Smith, you know this quote, and the quote that Smith said is this, if God's not moving, I'll move him. And I heard him say that, and I immediately felt offended in my spirit over that statement. And I went to the Lord, and I was praying, and I was complaining, really, and I said, God, I love your Smith, I honor him as your servant, but I've got a big problem with that statement. And Jesus, you know, graciously as he does, what do you have a problem with? (laughs) And I said, well, my problem is this. It seems extremely arrogant to me. He said, why does it seem arrogant to you? I said, because everything that I read and study regarding your sovereignty, and this is the exact phrase I told the Lord, said, leads me to believe that I cannot take your hand and move you to do something. I can't take... Uh, Alan's got a problem with his knee. I can't take the Lord's hand and make him heal Alan's knee. I can't take your hand and move you to do this. So for Smith to say, if God's not moving, I'll move him to me, sounds like complete arrogance. And the Lord said, son, you're right, but you're only half right. Please elaborate, Lord. And he said, Smith did move me, but he did not move me because he moved my hand. He moved me because he moved my heart. And that shifted my paradigm radically to begin to understand what it is to become a person who perpetually walks into the dimensions of the glory of the Lord, that it happens by not just being someone uh, who who believes that we can just just partner with him, but that we can actually come into such a place of surrender that our heart becomes a sacrifice that his fire then consumes. And I believe that we begin to shift and move the heart of God by aligning our heart with his. I think it happens when we begin to surrender everything that wars against the affections of Jesus in our lives. And I think that integrity is so uh, vital for this. 
I think much of the measure of external victory that we're going to see around us is going to flow from the measure of internal victory that we have first established in the secret place before the Lord. Something else that I felt the Lord speak to me um, about all this when I was praying into all this regarding heart postures. He said, son, everybody wants to trade their sickness for healing. Everybody wants to trade their sorrow for my joy, but not a lot of people want to trade their attitudes. Not a lot of people want to trade their thinking. Not a lot of people want to trade their paradigm for mine. Not a lot of people want to get out of their way and into my way. And I believe that as we continue to be a people who posture ourselves in the place of surrender, we position ourselves to steward his promises. And I think that's important for us to remember because we're going to be praying and I believe the wind of the Spirit is going to come upon us in a fresh way. And I want us to not just get a touch, but to shift that into a lifestyle. And I'm telling you, character and integrity is what anchors you in the anointing. Because listen, as much as we're crying out for all this stuff, I believe that the anointing will increase what is already in you. I believe the anointing will increase what is already in you. And I want us to think about it like this. Let's say there's a glass here and there's grains of sand in the bottom of this glass. All right, and a little bit of water is poured in, it's gonna remain, but, the, but when it begins to overflow, when there begins to be an excessive amount, everything that was at the bottom that we thought was removed was only dormant and now pushes up to the surface and begins to spill out. Is this making sense? And so the anointing coming pushes things from the bottom to the surface level, and that's a beautiful thing because Jesus doesn't reveal to shame, he reveals to set free. He's not revealing heart issues. He's not revealing these things to bring shame upon us as his sons and daughters. He's revealing things because it can be brought into the light of Jesus and then we can step into new dimensions of freedom. And I think one of the, one of the greatest issues, I believe with all my heart and regarding all the areas of character, lifestyle, living this thing out, I think is, is by not partnering with a culture that is baptized in appeasement. I believe the Lord does not want us to partner with a culture that is baptized in appeasement. And that's why I've titled this The Threat of Convenient Christianity because in a, in a general sense, we are gonna get into Luke 9 in just a bit, I promise. I'm just going a little rabbit trail here. In a general sense, in the Western church, what is beginning to emerge is a push for what I like to refer to as sort of a gospel buffet. Everything's laid out and you're free to come and pick and choose what you want. You can pick all the blessings. You can pick everything great. You can pick the easy stuff. You can pick being called as a missionary to Fiji. But all the hard stuff, we want to leave this out. And and it's this push, I believe, for a relevant Jesus. And it's incredibly ironic because you are not at any point in time ever going to have a more relevant being than Christ. You're not gonna have a more relevant being than Jesus. He is the desire of the nations. Every one of us is created to respond to his voice. Every one of us is created with a longing, whether the world is aware of it or not. See, they're thinking we're longing for this, we're longing for money, we're longing for sex, we're longing for drugs, we're longing for all these things. But at the root of it all is a cry for Christ that has been put in us from the very beginning. 
So you're never gonna have a more relevant figure than Jesus himself, but it's this deception of the enemy where he's come and he's brought misdirection, bearing fruit of misalignment. And it's this lie that says we have to cause, we have to mold Jesus, and it's really idolatry. It's creating a God in our own image. We have to mold Jesus into this figure of relevancy and make everything watered down and easy and unoffendable in order to draw people to him. And all throughout the narrative of Jesus in the Gospels, never once does he try to make anything easier. Never once does he try to avoid offending anyone. Never once is he concerned with remaining relevant. See, Jesus did not have his impact through relevancy. Jesus had his impact through revealing. In other words, he was so preoccupied with manifesting the will of his father on the earth and following him rather than trying to follow the trends of everybody else. See, we're not called to reflect culture. We're called to reflect the character of God in the earth. And I think that this push for relevancy has actually stripped the modern church of power. I think the push for relevancy has stripped the modern church of much of its power. And I believe that in this whole thing of relevancy, one of the most dangerous things that it begins to breed is this culture that is steeped in comfort and convenience. It's this lie that says, well, clearly the call of God on my life is going to be found in the path of least resistance. It's this thing that says, because he loves me, I'm never going to be called to do anything inconvenient. I'm never going to be called to do anything uncomfortable. And I think one of the worst theological mistakes that you and I can make is to associate the level of his goodness with the level of our comfort. I think one of the worst mistakes we can make is directly associating the level of his goodness with the level of our comfort. You see, just because it's something that you have to fight for, just because it's something that you have to go to war, you have to get into the trenches, you have to actually fight for the words over your life. I think that's why uh, in places the word of the Lord is referred to as a sword. I think we're actually called to take it up and do battle, do battle over the promises of God over our life. It's not gonna be easy. It's not gonna be comfortable. It's not gonna be convenient. The Holy Spirit, when he comes, he doesn't, he doesn't settle you. The Holy Spirit doesn't settle you. When we, when we are praying for the will of the Holy Spirit, the power of the presence of the Holy Spirit to come into our lives, he actually comes and disrupts everything around us. And Hebrews 12 paints a beautiful dichotomy of our Christian life. It says that we're inheritors of an unshakable kingdom, which is absolutely true. And on the other hand, it's, it's a seemingly paradox. It says everything is gonna be shaken. Everything that can be shaken will be shaken. I think of it like a wind blowing across a tree and shaking off the dead leaves, that God comes and shakes systems and shakes situations to sever everything that's not of himself. It's not gonna be easy. See, the Holy Spirit doesn't settle us. He disrupts. He launches us into a trajectory of unfamiliarity. Oh, boy. We've got to get into Luke 9 here. So I tried to, I've broken this down into sort of three sections. The first one is this, convenience will cripple your calling. Convenience will cripple your calling. I'm going to read Luke 9 now. I'm going to start at verse 57. 
This is about the cost to follow Jesus. We're going to go down to, I believe, 62. And um, I'm reading from the Passion Translation, so it may vary just a little bit from what you guys have. Luke 9, verse 57 says, On their way, someone came up to Jesus and said, I want to follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Yes, but remember this, even animals in the field have holes in the ground to sleep in. And birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place here to lay down his head. Jesus then turned to another and said, Come, be my disciple. He replied, Someday I will, Lord, but allow me first to fulfill my duty as a good son and wait until my father passes away. Jesus told him, Don't wait for your father's burial. Let those who are already dead wait for death. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere that God's kingdom has arrived. Still another said to him, Lord, I want to follow you too, but first let me go home and say goodbye to my entire family. Jesus responded, why do you keep looking backward to your past and having second thoughts about following me? When you turn back, you are useless to God's kingdom. And I started, I read that and I began to meditate on that first man that Jesus called. And I remembered sometime digging into this, reading a commentary from St. John of Chrysostom, and he pointed to the fact that in their culture, the young man would have inherited everything that his father possessed. And so in reality, what he's saying to Jesus is, in case all of this doesn't pan out, let me go back and have my natural inheritance to fall back on. And I was saddened in reading this because who knows what would have happened in his life had he accepted the call to follow Jesus. He probably thought he could have come at a different time, at a later time after receiving his inheritance and only a few months later would Jesus go to the cross. I love something that Leonard Ravenhill says that the opportunity of a lifetime must be seized within the lifetime of the opportunity. The opportunity of a lifetime must be seized within the lifetime of the opportunity. If you notice, if you go down and you start reading things like Matthew 4, when Jesus calls Simon and he calls uh, John, the sons of Zebedee, he calls them in the middle of their workday while they're mending their nets. Jesus never comes and calls at, an in, at a convenient time. He never comes and calls when it's easy. He never comes and calls when all of our ducks are in a row. He never comes and calls when all of our finances are in order and everything's settled. He's calling us into an inconvenient life. He's calling us into an an uncomfortable life. I believe it's a very dangerous place to be as believers if As a believer, it's a very dangerous place for me if I live under the banner of conditional obedience. I'm only obedient when I feel like being obedient. I think that's a dangerous place to be. God is looking for a people who give him an unbridled yes. I actually believe that often how how quickly you, you and I can advance and what it is that God has called us to do many times is dependent on how long it takes us to lay down the conditions to our yes. How quickly we can advance in what he's called us to do, I believe many times is dependent upon how long it takes to lay down the conditions to our yes. So God is after a people who give him full surrender, who give him 100% yieldedness. And what the enemy wants to come and do is lie and say, listen, you've given him 90% and that's good enough already. 
And God, I believe, is never after the 90% we give, he's after the 10% we hold on to. He's after our affections, he's after our hearts, he's after our surrender. St. Augustine said, God is always looking to give us good things, but our hands are too full to receive them. And I think that so often we have so tightened our grip on comfort and convenience that we're unable to let go and grab onto the promises of God over our life. I believe that we're so often tightly gripping negotiation, procrastination, and hesitation. When God has extended this invitation into this journey of unpredictability, but it's gonna be glorious. It's gonna be inconvenient. You're not always gonna have what you view as security, but the Holy Spirit is gonna be with you in the journey. He's never gonna leave you. He's never gonna forsake you. So I want to end that with this. Do not sacrifice your destiny on the altar of comfort. Refuse to sacrifice your destiny on the altar of your personal comfort. Because I'm telling you, everything that the Lord has called me to do, every time I've seen his kingdom come in power, it is always required inconveniencing me first. And I think that so often because we refuse to step outside of the boundaries of comfort, we're unable to step into seeing the kingdom come in power. I I really, I believe that refusing to be inconvenienced is refusing to see the kingdom come in power. Because I think that's how it's gonna come. It's not gonna come by playing it safe. It's just not. It's not gonna come by everything being easy. It's not gonna come with everything being familiar. It's not gonna come with everything being predictable. It comes when he shifts you out of your comfort. It comes when he shifts you out of the place of inconvenience. I think actually the gate of discomfort is the gate of encounter. Even when it's offensive to us, even when it's offensive to our natural minds, I actually think that God hides breakthrough within vessels of offense. I think God will hide breakthrough within things that are so offensive to you, you risk missing it if you operate according to your values rather than his. I think he actually hides things within something that is going to, that he knows is going to offend you so that you have to enter in through the door of humility. I'm telling you, the most powerful manifestations of the kingdom I've ever seen have come when I've been willing to be inconvenienced. And I've got story after story after story uh, I told one last night, I get, um, how many of you were here last night, by the way? Okay, a good bit of you, so I won't tell that. I'll tell another one. So I was, uh, very recently, I was in Buffalo, New York, and um, as Alan mentioned, I work with Global Awakening, um, associate evangelists with their ministry, and so we do a lot of events, and we're doing one in Buffalo, New York, and uh, it's late at night, and, you know, traveling often and running a lot, you, you know, you do your best to stay healthy, and um, I was having... Uh, a, a caving moment. And so I'm getting on DoorDash looking for some giant cheat day dinner at about 10.30 p.m. at the hotel. And I'm sitting outside of their bar, sitting on this little white couch. I'm scrolling on DoorDash looking for some food. Only thing I see at first is McDonald's. Can't get that. It's, it's forbidden. Camden would kill me if I get McDonald's. And I'm looking. Scrolling. And as I'm scrolling there, a guy comes out 
very, very, very drunk. And he, uh, you know, I mentioned last night, for those of you who aren't here, it's funny that the Lord has me doing any of this because I'm an extreme introvert. And I'm very big on personal space. So this guy comes wasted out of the bar and he stumbles over. He's walking. He's, he's one of the only people I've ever seen walk almost entirely diagonal. <laughs> and he stumbles over to me and points his finger in my face. And now I'm immediately many levels of annoyed. <laughs> and he points his finger in my face and he says, what you doing hanging out here? And in, you know, Christ-like love, I said, well, if you have to know, I'm on DoorDash looking for some food because I'm hungry. And I'm thinking to myself, please get away from me. (laughs) And he says, cool, man, my name's Clint. And he walks away. And I thought, well, I'm glad he's gone. (laughs) And as he gets closer and closer to the elevator, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit grips my heart with compassion for him. But listen, everything in me did not want to go talk to this guy. <laughs> Nothing in me wanted to go talk to this guy. And it was not, it's not my compassion. This is the compassion of Jesus. Grip my heart for him. And I knew in that moment, so you're going to have these moments where you're faced with the, with the decision between comfort or consecration. And so I knew this is one of those moments for me. And so I... I really didn't want to do it, but I stood up, and, and normally he was so close to the elevator, anybody else I would have had to run, but he, as slow as he was moving, it was more of a speed walk over to the elevator. And I touch him on the shoulder and turn him around, and he's kind of startled, taken back a little bit, and I said, Clint, I've got to tell you something. And he said, what do you have to tell me? And I had no clue what I had to tell him. And so last night you heard me allude to emergency prayer, which is help. And so I'm thinking, come on, Lord, you got to give me something for this guy. And I said, Clint, God's going to heal the pain in your heart from when you were 11. And he's going to heal your left knee too right now. And Clint breaks down, sobbing, sobbing, sobbing. I pray for his left knee. He has the pain leave. And, um, and I've seen this. T- you, you see this. I'm telling you, this stuff is out there for you every day. And so at this point, I've learned whenever, when things like this are happening, you just kind of wait it out. And I'm waiting, and the Lord's touching, and he's moving on his heart. And he finally gets to where he stops stammering and crying enough to tell me what's going on. I said, what's, what's happening to you? And he said, all my life, my dad was, he wasn't physically abusive, but was tremendously verbal, verbally abusive. Uh, and my, my whole life, he would scold me for everything, but especially on my grades, especially calling me stupid, especially calling me an idiot. And when I was 11 years old, I came home one day, and he stood over me and pointed, and he said, Clint, you are a failure. And he said, I've never forgotten that, and it's haunted me all the days of my life. And I said, well, Jesus is just going to take that away right now and put my hand on him. And I'm tell- he was tremendously, tremendously encountered by the Holy Spirit tremendously encountered by the Holy Spirit and asked me to accept Jesus. It's an incredible thing, but it's on the other side of convenience. It's on the other side of comfort. (laughs) 
And I'm talking about all of this for a reason. I know this might seem like heavy stuff, but listen, I, I'm really am an, a very happy guy. I'm in a great mood. But, but I think this is... I know this seems heavy, but listen, the Holy Spirit, when he comes on us, we're sent into war. And it's not always going to be easy. And we need to remember the fact that despite the difficulties, the kingdom of God is going to come wherever we go because he lives in us, because he's in us, because he's resting upon us. I'm going to move quickly here to this second point, and it's that convenience removes us from tension. And earlier I mentioned that we're very mistaken by associating his goodness with the level of our comfort. And we get the idea that God wants to deliver us from tension when I believe he actually has built us to live in the midst of it. Because in the middle of pressing, power is produced in you and I. The Holy Spirit puts us in these places of tension, these places of the refining fire to birth in us power to persevere. I bless you in the name of Jesus. I bless the Holy Spirit on you. In the name of Jesus, fill him, Lord. The Holy Spirit comes and he places us in tension to produce power. He births in us power to persevere. And apart from power for endurance, we're gonna burn out as a shooting star rather than leaving a legacy. So the Spirit births in us perseverance through tension. Strength is birthed out of struggle. For the sake of time here, I'm going to move on to this last one. Revival is never convenient. Revival is never convenient. Listen, everybody talks about, you know, we go all around the world, everywhere we go, everybody's crying out for revival. All the charismatic renewal circles, everyone's crying out for revival. And I think it's rightly so. I'm one of those people. But I think we would probably see a dwindling in the numbers if, if we count the costs. Many times I think we actually can get in our minds a romanticized view of revival. And it's a glorious thing. It's an incredible thing. And I'm contending for the Lord to bring this. But I really believe it's another dimension of the reality of what Jesus said when he said of himself, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. I think praying for revival is like praying for a death sentence. Revival costs convenience. It's messy. It requires a surrender of control. It turns a lot of enemies into friends, but it turns even more friends into enemies. It absolutely costs us our convenience. And you read in the lives of these revivalists all of these incredible stories. But you also see the fact that there was a cost associated with it. I love reading of men like John Wesley, but even from the time he was an infant, his father Samuel had an attempt on his life. He was almost burned down in a church. And Wesley would preach and would be run out of churches and have people come chasing him with cleavers and whips and spitting at him and pulling his hair. There was a cost that came with what he carried. There was a cost that came with the revival that he carried that stirred up things in the regions wherever he would go. Men like Peter Cartwright, how many of you are familiar with Peter Cartwright, circuit rider in the 1800s? If you read about Cane Ridge, you could follow trails to Peter Cartwright. And this sounds crazy, but it's a true story. 
People would become so upset at Peter Cartwright when he was ministering because of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit that he would have people oppose him physically. He would have to take them out back, beat them up, come back and finish his sermon. That's absolutely true. If you read about him, it says he carried two things on him at all times, a Bible and a pistol. <laughs> and it got so intense, so intense was the persecution with Peter that, you know, back then their language was a little different. They used the word ruffian. And he said he had to tire the chief town ruffians to come as his bodyguards and protect him because in the midst of the revival, there was such a persecution that people were physically coming to fight him. He was opposed everywhere he would go. Something I've always loved reading that ties in beautifully with this is uh, from a man by the name of Winky Prattney. Anyone familiar with Winky Prattney? Uh, he's a, a brilliant guy. And, this, and it's from his Revival Bible in 2010. It's a commentary on Acts 12, 15, when Peter is miraculously ex- has miraculously escaped from prison and he goes uh, to join up with the others at the house and he knocks on the door and Rhonda answers the door and she believes that it's Peter and she goes to tell the others and depending on what translation you read, it'll say, you're crazy or you're insane or you're mad. And I love Winky's commentary on Acts 12, 15. He said, there are always those who think true spirituality is insanity. At Charles Finney's first public account of his own conversion, a fellow lawyer left the meeting with the comment, he's earnest, but he is deranged. When Finney stood up to preach his first revival messages in the backwoods of New York, startling chaos ensued. One man came to the meeting with a pistol intent on killing the speaker of the evening. Instead, he fell to the floor and was soundly saved. Everywhere Finney went for some 40 years, the turmoil spread. And this is a first right here. One preacher threatened to oppose him with a cannon if he dared venture into his parish. Can you imagine being so enraged by the Spirit of God and another man that if you say, if you come into my church, I'm going to shoot you with a cannon. <laughs> Denounced by clergy and secularists alike for his innovations in evangelism, Finney was tolerably ahead of his time. And he says this, a world is never moved by the mildly interested. We have only two choices if we want to change the world, holy or unholy madness. And again, that's from Winky Pratney's Revival Bible, uh, 2010, commentary on Acts 12, 15. And I believe that revival is just that. Revival is holy madness. It's a holy madness. It's a sword of the Lord. And I think that the Holy Spirit has called us to be a people who carry this. I truly do. Earlier when I referenced Hebrews 12, that dichotomy of pains of our Christian life, it alludes to all the shaking, all the sifting. And listen, we're seeing tremendous, tremendous shaking in the midst of our culture right now, but do not lose sight of the fact that you have inherited an unshakable kingdom. Do not look at the shaking and, and allow the enemy to move you into becoming disheartened because I think that's actually his strategy. I think that disheartening and dis- depression of the people of God is a strategy of Satan to take you out in this time, to take you out from what God wants to send you into in the earth. Do not lose heart of the fact that you are inheritors of the unshakable kingdom of Jesus Christ. 
And listen, I know there's a lot of shaking right now. I know there's, 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 there's a, a baptism of stupidity that is, that is resting upon so much of the culture. There's craziness, craziness. But the kingdom that we have inherited is truly unshakable. And I'm telling you, Jesus will not abandon his bride. Jesus will not abandon his bride and the Holy Spirit will have the final say. And in everything around, even in the churches where it looks like it's dead, where it's easy to become disheartened, it's easy to become discouraged, I think that God is in the midst of doing to the church the same thing that happened with Ezekiel and the Valley of Dry Bones, where he just has to release his breath and we stand in awe and watch dead things rise to life in the power of the Lord. I'm going to end with this. This is an open vision I had a couple months ago now. I was ministering with a good friend of mine down in Georgia. Glad that wasn't open. I was ministering with a friend of mine down in Georgia and um, sleeping in the bed laying next to Camden. Camden's out within five or ten minutes as usual. And as usual, I'm laying there for hours wide awake I don't know if anyone like me is just your mind just seems to just run all the time at night and so I'm laying there sometimes it works out uh, as more of a blessing than a curse and this is one of those times I'm laying there wide awake and all of a sudden I just I'm sure you've had these moments where whether you're seeing something in the spirit or not you just have times where you just I don't know if I can quite give language to it, but you can just sense something of the Lord has shifted the atmosphere here. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? You just have these moments where you can tell he's here right now. He's always with us, but you know, he's here. And so I sit up in the bed. It was one of those Samuel moments, speak, Lord. And I'm waiting to hear his voice. And all of a sudden, I wasn't expecting this, but I was taken into this open vision. It was like everything in front of me vanished. I'm standing in the middle of this large city. And whether it's a literal city or whether it, was, uh, it appeared to look something like New York, I don't know, it was, uh, it was just a city. And I'm standing there and I'm thinking, what is this? All of a sudden I begin to hear a baby crying behind me. And I turn around and it's not one baby, but it's hundreds of babies scattered all over the ground of the city. They're just scattered, laying out on the ground. They're dirty, they're malnourished, they're naked. They look beat up, they're bleeding. It's a really horrific thing to see. I'm watching this. And as soon as I begin to try and take in what I'm seeing, I was lifted up in the vision. Now, not physically. Physically, I'm here in my bed. Okay. But in this vision, it was as if I felt a hand on the back of my shirt lift me up high into the air. And with this aerial view, I'm seeing not hundreds, but thousands of these babies scattered all over the ground. They're crying and they're screaming and they're sick and they're dirty and they're broken. They're, it could look like they haven't been fed in weeks and you can see their ribs. They're starving. I'm trying to take all of this in again. And one last time I felt like the Lord lifted me up where it was, it, the only way I can describe it to you is it appeared as though I was hovering over the whole earth. And it, at this time, it looked like it was not hundreds or thousands, but millions of these babies scattered all over the ground. And just as I began to believe I was taking in what I was seeing, I was taken out of it just like that. And I'm sitting there in the bed, and I'm crying. I was thinking, it's a terrible thing to see this, but I'm saying, Lord, what are you trying to say? 
what is this? What are you showing me? And now because of the state that our culture is in, what I immediately assumed was that it was something to do with abortion. My mind immediately went there and the Lord corrected me. And he said, this is nothing to do with that. I said, well, what is it? What are you showing me? And he said, this is what it will be like if I reap in the harvest and the church has no nursery to care for the infants. This is the state that the church will be in if I bring in the harvest of these spiritual babies and there's no room for them. There's nowhere to take care of them. There's nowhere to feed them. There's nowhere to clothe them. There's nowhere to give them what they need to sustain them, give them what they need to be in life. And I immediately knew all of this was about preparation and, the, and listen, I think sometimes we've been around talking about harvest and talking about what the Lord's gonna do for so long, we've become dull. I think many of us are losing sight of the fact that it's real. We're losing sight of the fact that God actually is gonna do this. And he's calling us to be a prepared people to steward the harvest that he's gonna bring into the earth. But listen, infants are inconvenient. Nurseries are messy. I'm seeing my friend Adam over here shaking his head really hard at me with their new baby. You're not gonna have babies without having messes to clean up. This thing isn't gonna be convenient. This thing isn't gonna be comfortable. It's not gonna allow us to settle into apathy. I think that the spirit of God upon this house and upon us, so many others is calling you to be a people prepared to steward the blessing that he's gonna release. And so I wanted to end with plenty of time here to just allow the Holy Spirit to minister.